Scott, why movies? <sighs> Great question. As someone who lived in a household that was very sports-oriented growing up, I had a very big disconnect with my father because he always wanted me to play baseball or football. And I was always that quirky kid who liked to draw and sit down and watch Sesame Street. And then I discovered movies. And movies were an escape. They made me forget about things that were going on in my home. They made me escape into different worlds. They made me feel things. They inspired me. And I credit Tim Burton for why I do what I do today. Because, yes, I grew up watching Pee-wee's Playhouse. But it wasn't until Pee-wee's Big Adventure and then Beetlejuice and Batman that I really became obsessed with movies. And my world changed entirely when I saw Tim Burns Nightmare Before Christmas. That movie spoke to me on so many levels and it made me love the gothic culture. It made me fall in love with stop motion animation, but it opened my mind in such a way that I never quite experienced before. I became so obsessed with this movie that I bought, there was this art book that came out from it and I would take it everywhere. You know, I go, go to the dinner table. I would go through the, the art book. I would bring it into the bathroom. I was just obsessed with this book. So much so that it actually made me want to draw. And there was a period of time in my life where I actually thought I wanted to become an animator. And I took animation classes because of this book, because of this movie. And it really just made me fall in love with movies, animation, and the entire thing as an art form. What's the favorite scene from Nightmare Before Christmas? <laughs> I mean, it's right from the beginning. I, I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas has such an iconic opening scene with the Patrick Stewart voiceover. This is Halloween. I mean, all of those characters coming to life, whether it's Lock, Shock and Barrel, Oogie Boogie, Jack Skellington, Sally, all of them coming to life, just, I don't know, this like warped kid, like just was like inspired. Almost the same way like you feel with Tim Burton's background, right? He, he was a weird recluse. He was like the social outcast and he just drew, he drew these weird characters and these weird drawings. And everyone was kind of like, what's up with you growing up? And I was not a popular kid. And watching this movie, I felt seen. It was very weird because Jack Skellington in a weird way lives in this world, this Halloween town, but then he wants something more. And he, he wants to become Santa Claus. He wants, to, he wants something different. He yearns for change. And I think I resonated with that 
not really realizing it as a kid that I wasn't like a lot of people my age and that I always wanted something different. I wanted to be viewed differently. And this movie just spoke to me in a way that I really can't describe. What other movies have changed your life? Well, in addition to Nightmare Before Christmas, there's been a lot of them that impacted me in different ways throughout the years. Again, <laughs> I, I feel like the ultimate Tim Burton fanboy here, but between Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, Batman Returns, Ed Wood, just movies that just connect me. And I, again, it's about being an outsider, struggling to fit in. Oh, Edward Scissorhands. How can I forget about Edward Scissorhands? Outsiders trying to fit in in this world. And it's interesting thinking about this now because as an adult, you reflect upon that from a childhood perspective of being the kid who was bullied, who was picked on, who never felt like he belonged. And now being asked this, I'm kind of like, holy crap, that's the reason why I connected with these. But as I, as I kind of matured throughout the years, comedies were things that I always gravitated towards. So I had my Tim Burton escape for the imagination, but I love comedies. Favorite comedies growing up, definitely Mike Myers, anything. So I married an axe murderer, Wayne's World, Austin Powers, I don't care what anyone says, all three of them. I love Goldmember. I loved Fat Bastard. I just loved what Mike Myers did. And he was so, a lot of people say he's very one note, but I just love that he had, again, this imagination of creating these different characters. And it was always a love of movies, right? Like Austin Powers was a love of James Bond and all the characters, but it was like this, this parody version of it. And they were so extreme. Every character was so silly and over the top, whether it was Dr. Eva with the $1 million or, you know, Fat Bastard or Goldmember going, so I like gold. You know, like I just really, really love that. And Jim Carrey. Uh, uh, Jim Carrey is another one that talk about someone who I was obsessed with growing up. Ace Ventura, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber coming out within a year span. Um, man, my, I don't know how my mom and dad dealt with me growing up because I just wanted to go to the movies and live there my entire life. Like I just, these, these movies, these characters just made me feel so alive. And they were, as I, as I said earlier, they're just an escape. You just, you just, you wanted to spend time. They felt like friends. And I love things where I feel something, right? Whether it's laughter or heart or a sense of like leaving this world behind and going into another world. That's really what connected to me. And then when I moved out here the first time, I went to Chapman University and I did a tour a couple years prior and I saw my first indie movies. And I, I'll never forget it because it was a back-to-back. -back. I went to, I don't even remember. I think it was the Lemley on Sunset 5, like where now it's like the AMC Sunset 5. But it was like a Lemley theater long time ago. 
they wouldn't let anyone under the age of 16 in that theater. And they showed all these great art house movies. And I remember this so vividly because I saw Lost and Delirious, which was the first movie that I have ever watched that introduced me to lesbian characters. And I remember like seeing this love story and I never saw anything like it before. And I fell in love with the with Piper Parabo and she was so great in that film and it was very poetic and I just loved it. And then the following night I went back and I saw Ghost World with, you know, Tora Birch and Scarlett Johansson, very, very early Scarlett Johansson. And it just opened my eyes to independent cinema because beforehand, like I said earlier, I've been watching all of this mainstream stuff. I grew up Mike Myers, Jim Carrey, Tim Burton. And I was like these smaller movies and they were just so incredibly inspiring and they opened the door to so many more. So that's when I went back and I started watching things like American Beauty and I became such an art house champion and you know, inspired me to go to Sundance and, and do all these film festivals because, wow, there's other people telling stories that aren't just Hollywood studios. Do you remember Jim Carrey on In Living Color? Oh my God, Fire Marshal Bill, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, let me show you something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How often do you watch a movie? <laughs> uh, it changes now. The pandemic really did change things for me. I used to be the movie guy. Movies only. TV show? What's that? Never going to watch it. Pandemic? Completely changed that. I started seeing the movies that were coming out during the pandemic. And I don't know if it's something with the studios that they were trying to release films that I would label as lesser than. They just didn't hit the way that a lot of movies that I've seen in years prior would. So I was watching these movies at home and I was just kind of like, that was fine. That was fine. That was okay. Oh, this one was a little bit better than that one. And I just kept seeing on social media all this, this talk about like TV shows. And then I started going into it and I started watching TV shows. And one of the shows that I fell in love with during the pandemic was Normal People. And Normal People is with uh, Daisy Edgar Jones. She's now in Fresh and she has the uh, Crawdads movie coming out. And she is just electrifying. I, I, don't, I don't know how else to put it, but her and I believe the guy's name is Paul Pascal. I think that's his name, Pascal, something like that. Uh, might be butchering that, but it's Paul something. And this it's a very intimate love story between these two people who are just not right for one another, but they're trying to make it work and they each have their problems. And I just remember sitting through this and it's it's really depressing, it's really heavy. But I just remember when I finished it, I was like, wow, what an experience. Like it made me feel how I used to feel when I went to the movies. And then I started watching more TV shows, whether it was like comedies like Dollface or Ted Lasso that everyone's connected with or Hacks or Only Murders in the Building or Severance. And I started having this weird pivot where I was like, 
as much as I love going to the movies, is this movie that I'm going to see going to be as good as Hacks or as good as Severance or as good as Ted Lasso? And it's weird to say this as someone who grew up with such a fond memory of movies and who loves movies with all his heart to sort of pause and kind of say, you know what? I got an invite for Crimes of the Future. Should I go to that or should I finish watching The Dropout? And it's really, really weird to have that happen when you feel so dead set against something for so long. But to answer your question, I know it was like a roundabout way of getting there. I, I used to go five days a week, you know, when before the pandemic, it was like literally any screening that came up, Scott Menzel is there, I would be going. And then it just changed because not only with the gas prices and like valuing of time a little bit more, like I, I kind of had this realization, like not every movie needs to be seen on the big screen. So I'll never forget it. It's, it's, it's a movie and I, I don't mean to, to crap on this movie, but like it's something that really bothered me was they wouldn't send me a link to see the card counter. It's the Oscar Isaac movie. And I had to do the junket for it. And I drove down to a screening room and truthfully, I didn't really like the movie. There's elements of it that I kind of enjoyed, but as a whole, it just didn't work for me. And I remember sitting in traffic driving home and I'm like, why did I have to drive to see this? Like I would have had the exact same reaction watching this on my couch that I would have had driving all the way here. In fact, it probably would have been a little bit better because I would have been like, ah, that's fine. Where now I'm gonna lean a little bit more negative towards it because the experience that I had, driving to the theater, two people being in the theater, like, like they couldn't even fill up the screening room. It was like two people in the theater and it's like, why, why? And I know people always argue the fact that like movies need to be experienced on the big screen. And I think it was James Gunn who said this, but movies have a very short life expectancy on a big screen. They, they're there for a couple of months and then they live, whether it's on DVD, on demand, streaming, whatever it is nowadays. So as much as I enjoy the spectacle of like watching like a Top Gun Maverick on the big screen and that movie needs to be experienced on the big screen, a movie like Card Counter, where it's just like a drama, like where there's no big set pieces, there's not a lot of action, there's not a lot going on, I can enjoy that at home. So my viewing habits have pivoted from going like five days a week to kind of going two, maybe three at most. Uh, and I'm more selective of what I'm gonna drive to see because again, there's so much other content out there then I'm like, okay, do I really need to see this movie before everyone else? Like, yes, I need to see Thor Love and Thunder, but do I need to see the card counter before everyone else? Or can that wait until that plays five minutes from my house and I'll just go randomly on a Saturday night? I was gonna bring up the fact that I'm in that camp too where I thought that TV was whatever and, and I've pivoted as well. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I, 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 I feel like I'm... <laughs> I just feel like I'm being like a traitor in a weird way to the industry. But I think a lot of people have starting to come that, that turn that corner now. 
I think a lot of people are just connecting with things and they're like, wow, these shows are better. And I, I think it's even the studio's fault. Like Marvel is turning their products into TV shows. So when you have a WandaVision, which to me is better than most of these phase four movies. I mean, it's way better than Eternals. It's way better than Doctor Strange. It's better than Thor Love and Thunder. So you have this TV show that I think has more emotion, more depth, that of course people are gonna have the option. Do I really wanna go see this or am I gonna stay at home and watch this? What's the longest you can go without watching a movie? <laughs> I would say probably a day or two. It's weird. Like we talk about addiction all the time. Entertainment is sort of addiction. Whether it's watching a trailer or a TV show or being the first to see a movie, there's something <laughs> that is wired up there where you just feel this need to experience it. And the only time where I don't feel I need to go to a movie every day or every other day is after I get back from a film festival. Because in film festivals, I go hard. And when I say I go hard, I'm going from the first screening of the day, usually at nine o'clock in the morning, until the last screening at the, of the day at 10 o'clock. If you're at Sundance, it's 12 or at South by as well. So I'm literally going nonstop from nine o'clock in the morning, sometimes until two o'clock in the morning, watching movies. And when I'm Done with a film festival, that's like the time where I can step back for like a week and be like, you know what? I think I'm okay if I don't go. But then what happens in our industry is that you get these nice little things called screening invites. And you're like, oh man, that, that's right. That screening's coming up. And then even though I said to myself, I'm not going to go for a week. Oh, well, Batman's on Thursday. Got to go see Batman on Thursday. And that's what happens. Yeah, that would be difficult to be sitting that entire time. But I know when you when it's being like fed to you, you have no other choice. Oh no, no, and and I mean you can't pro you can't process everything. Right. That, that, mm -hmm. That's that's, that's the uh, the one thing I will say about film festivals that I think is, is very interesting. In a weird way, you're doing yourself and the filmmakers and the storytellers a little bit of a disservice, because if you see a movie that is like phenomenal like that like knocks your socks off at like nine o'clock in the morning and then you have one at noon you're going to be riding this high from this movie that you're going to go into the next movie and it's going to be very very hard for that movie to top what you just watched and then the opposite can be said you can watch the most horrendous movie at nine o'clock in the morning and be like God, i hope the day gets better because you know, that movie I just sat through, what a piece of crap. And then you can go in the next movie and you almost have like this, well, this was so much better. So it's almost like you overhype it a little bit. And I've been, I've, been, I've been very guilty of this. I think like when you see stuff, it's sort of, at film festivals specifically, 
you kind of feel the audience reaction. You kind of feel the crowd. And I've been on both sides of that where people have been really enjoying stuff and I've been like in pain, like centrist, like, oh my God, when is this over? I don't want to be here anymore. Or the opposite of where like I've really enjoyed something and you can tell like everyone around me is like not feeling it. But I do think that the more stuff that you watch back to back to back, the harder it is to have appropriate expectations and reactions towards. Because what I've found myself is that when I hit in a middle ground, like if I see something really bad and then something really good, then the rest of the stuff I kind of walk out of and go, oh, it's fine. It's very weird to explain and experience. But if you go to a film festival and you've done it for like numerous numerous years like I have, you'll sort of understand what I'm saying is that seeing four or five things back to back is not always the best way of doing it, but you feel like you almost have to because it's like, oh, I don't know when this movie's gonna come out. And then there's this always this urge of like, I wanna be the first person to see it. I wanna be one of the first to see this. I wanna be the, the champion of this movie. Like I, I think back to Coda, you know, I, I saw that at Sundance. And that was the movie where like, I saw it, I fell in love with it. And I was like, this is gonna be the awards movie. And I, and I literally rode that train and everyone was like, Scott, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy. And you know, in those last two months going into the Oscars, going from SAG to seeing it kind of sweep everything moving forward from that, it was, it was, it was great to see. Yeah, there's like an afterglow with a great film where you need time to like process. You, you come out of the theater, it's dark, but you're still in that world and you're still in those characters. And it, it is difficult then to go to another equally great one or whatever. It, it loses something because that's the beauty of loving a film is you're lost in it for weeks, sometimes almost a lifetime yeah. if it's really that powerful. Yeah. I think what the problem is too is that and I, I said this online and I've, I've often gotten criticism from it, is that I don't like having an instant reaction to things. But the way that we as film critics are and what has kind of been programmed into our brains is that we want to react to something as soon as we see it. It's, it's what I keep saying about being the first. You wanna get into that first screening. You wanna be the first to see the Batman. You wanna be the first to see Top Gun Maverick, right? There's something special about being part of that initial buzz to kind of be like, I saw this before other people. And it's not anything about ego. It's just this kind of this, this feeling of like, wow, I was important enough or this studio looked at me and trust my opinion well enough that they would include me in those first batch of reviews or those first batch of reactions. So I often come out of a movie and almost subconsciously, first thing I do, pull out my phone and I just start typing reaction. I mean, even stuff that's out, like it's just like, okay, this movie's been out, but I still feel like I have to chime in on it. Like when we were at um, a couple of days ago, we went to see Minions and I didn't go to the press screening for that because it was a busy week. And I went to just see it at a regular theater. And it was funny because I'm seeing it with everyone else. And yet, as soon as it's done, pull out my phone, reaction. It's like, there's no need. Like, all the reviews are out. But it's just like this knee-jerk thing that we all do because we're, we become programmed. That 
you want to be part of that buzz. You want to be part of that experience. And that's what social media does. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's kind of, you know, again, another controversial top subject is it has taken away from in-depth reviews. I used to be the type of person who would spend five hours writing a review. And I mean, my wife used to laugh at me all the time. She's like, what are you writing a novel over there? Like I, you're talking like 1,500, 2,000 words. Every review I, I wrote, I would go into like what worked, what didn't, how it made me feel, yada, yada, yada. And it's so weird because you put out a tweet and it's like instant gratification, right? It's just like, oh, oh man, he really liked that. It's like, oh, look, look at it. Look at all the retweets, what are all the likes. And then you post the review like a week later and you like literally poured five hours of your time into it. And it's like, 10 retweets, 10 likes. And after a while, it almost becomes discouraging. You're like, why am I going to spend all this time pouring my heart and soul sitting down when I could just have a conversation on a podcast or on a Twitter spaces for 15 minutes, talk about how I feel and more people are gonna pay attention to, to it that way. Or even better, just write five tweets and put them in a, in, a, in, a, in a thread, and there you go. And more people are gonna read that and pay attention to it than anything that I write in long form. What about when something's embargoed? How do you, how do you stop yourself? Oh, that's, that's really difficult, especially when, <laughs> again, it's, it's the extremes of everything, right? If it's a movie that you walk out of and you're like, it's fine, or you don't really have a reaction to, those are the, the those are the hardest ones to review, the hardest movies to talk about, and the ones that have no impact on in, in embargoes because you're just kind of like, eh, all right, don't really have much to say about that anyway. But it's when you see something that's so good or so bad. And I I can tell you this, I have no problem admitting this. I will tell you that studios will absolutely kill you if you slander a movie that they have really, really high praise for or they're hoping to have a really strong box office and you come out and you rip it to shreds when the embargo lifts. Without going into details, I have been kicked off lists many of times for years at a time because I said so-and-so movie was not good and it's not just the studios, it's, it's the producers, it's the directors, it's the stars. They're like, did you see what this person said about our thing? And again, social media, the lack of control, and everyone's looking for the next clickbait headline, that I have had some tweets of like something that I felt really strongly about, like in terms of negative, be the headlines of major publications as like, this movie is the most disappointing movie that I've seen all year. And when that gets out and studios see that and talent sees that, mm -mm -mm, not, a good, not a good look. And it's been really difficult because I always pride myself on being very, very honest. But then sometimes I've also realized that I'm too honest and I'm kind of, kind of brutally honest to a fault that I've been sort of trying to find the good with the bad. So I'll try to kind of say, this, this, and this are pretty good. 
but this was really bad. So it kind of like waters down in a little bit. So it doesn't come off as like so harsh. And again, I think that's what any good critic should do is that they should be able to look at something and kind of say, okay, this movie's really not that good, but there's gotta be something good about it. So now I've been more, I don't know, I take a little bit more time to process something if I if I have a immediate like knee-jerk reaction to it of like negativity that I, I wanna process it a little bit and kind of say, okay, is there anything about this that I liked? And kind of make that a little known as well. And then I'll hammer in on the on the negative. But I think it's 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 really hard nowadays because this 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 area that we live in with criticism is so vast. Because before it was like you worked for a trade or you worked for a newspaper or a TV outlet, right? Those were like the three things. And now and I mean, this is not new, but like over the past 15 years, it's like, you can be a YouTube reviewer. You can be, you can have your own blog. You can be on TikTok. You can be on Instagram. You can be all over. You could just do Twitter. You could do letterbox. So like all these voices are kind of coming together and the studios, uh, they really do pick people and they, it's, it's all about relationships. And I, I pride myself on trying to have a good relationship with as many people as possible but I always promise myself that I have to be honest. I, if I don't like something, I have, to, I have to be able to say that I don't like something. I get their, their fear of like maybe not being the first person out of the gate to kind of rip something to shreds. But to me, something that's being lost nowadays is like this fear of like losing your access because you're honest. And I think that's a good point. And, and I think it's good to be respected and not have sort of a used car salesman vibe to yeah. you, which I know is prevalent sometimes in Hollywood. But at the same time, I think we've all read reviews where whoever it is just went for the jugular on this person. And you don't know, did they know them in college? Like, is there, was there a prior beef? And they just, they just attack them on so many levels. So I think there's like this middle ground. But yeah, I, I respect that, that you want to... Be, be honest about the review and not uh, sugarcoat it or just, that, that's tricky because you want to be invited back. Yeah, I mean, the problem with criticism nowadays is that if you're not a voice that agrees with the masses, and, and again, what are the masses nowadays, right? Because we live in our own like bubbles. Like the industry, film Twitter, Instagram Twitter, whatever the heck it is, all of these things, they're very specific to a very small audience. And you kind of get like obsessed with it, right? Like, and people are on the internet, as we all know, are very mean, especially if you voice something that's different. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. Dear Evan Hansen. I like Dear Evan Hansen. I like the Broadway musical. I like the movie. Is it a great movie? No, it's, it's good. But I'll tell you, as one of the voices to kind of stand up for that movie, the amount of hate you get when you just kind of disagree with everyone, like, oh, this has terrible messaging. How can you like something like this? And you try to explain yourself, like, look at it from this perspective. And like, no, 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 you don't get it. Like, that's wrong. You can't look at it from that perspective. It's very, very difficult to kind of defend yourself because you're not having a conversation 
with, with a person. You're having a conversation online with people who are too afraid to talk to you to your face. And that's what's also weird about film criticism is that a lot of these filmmakers and actors have now become known to who I am as a person because I run a critics organization. And because I run a critics organization, I also have to pause a little bit about my reactions to things because how does this affect other members within our organization? So if I don't like something like Power of the Dog, how is Netflix going to react when that movie gets nominated and we do an award show and we need those people there? So it kind of has this weird thing that I start thinking about is like, is, is that the reason why most people from Power of the Dog didn't come to the award show? Because they knew that the person at the top of the this organization didn't care for the movie. And then you just kind of have this weird pause. And I think that that, that kind of trickles down into every aspect of, of filmmaking now is that we see this with fans, right? Like Sonic, right? The backlash of the character design, everyone like backlashed against it. And then they redid the, the character design, granted for the greater good for that one. But Star Wars, Marvel, DC, it's like there's so much outpouring of like criticism and hate that you almost struggle to kind of like know where your voice is anymore because you want to support these things and you I, I love to champion creativity and I always agree with the statement of art is subjective and I think so many people forget about it it's like how can you not like this this movie and it's like just didn't resonate with me it didn't I didn't like the characters I didn't like the direction. I didn't like the story. I didn't like the way it was filmed. There's so many different things that some person, one person could see and another person will see something different. And you just kind of have to learn to live with it. So I never, I never take any offense when people really disagree with me. My only thing is when people start name calling and like really start playing you down as like the worst critic ever because you didn't like something. It's like, no, it's just like, I didn't see what you saw, sorry. How do you judge a movie? This is a great question because I think everyone judges a movie differently. A lot of people will judge a movie based on its visual style, its score, its production value. For me, it kind of has to be the complete package. And I think it starts with characters. Characters and story are key. You can have the most beautiful looking film in the world, but if I watch a movie and the story doesn't connect with me and I don't care about any of the characters, it doesn't matter how good the score is, doesn't matter how good the costumes are, doesn't matter how great the cinematography is, the story sucks, the movie sucks. And I think that's something that I struggle with a lot nowadays when it comes to films. Because if you've noticed, there's become this very bad pattern in the industry where everyone has said, visually stunning. Everything's visually stunning, cinematic, no matter what it is. And you're like, you watch these movies and it's like, what's with these characters? Like, why are they underdeveloped? Why are they like, 
doing these? Like, what's, what's, what's the reasoning behind their actions? And that's what I focus on. So like for me, characters and story are key to any movie. And it doesn't matter to me, it doesn't matter if a movie doesn't have like the most, I don't know, spectacle of direction. But if you have a story that connects with viewers, that will elevate the movie almost in every way. Sure, you can say like, oh, if so-and-so directed this movie, don't you think it would have been a little bit better? Sure. But I still think it comes down to those two key elements of you have to have characters that are going to resonate with an audience and you have to have a story that's going to connect with an audience. And that's all it is to it because nowadays visual movies are a dime a dozen. Every Marvel movie is a visually stunning movie. Every DC movie is a visually stunning movie. Every Star Wars movie, every animation, all of that stuff, visually stunning. It's what goes into the meat and potatoes of like those characters and the story that's being told that makes it worthy of your time or not. Okay, Elvis, visually stunning, but excellent characters. Yes. Would you agree? Yes, okay. yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to say with Elvis, it's a balancing of tone in a weird way too, because I know a lot of people are criticizing Tom Hanks' character in that movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yes, a lot of people are criticizing it because it's, it's kind of very over the top. It's almost like, almost like a Dr. Evil type villain, like I'm so menacing. And the way that Baz Luhrmann shoots certain scenes with him, it's kind of almost like he's going like, oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> Elvis is mine. <laughs> right. So I I watched some of this and I'm kind of like, okay, like this is a little over the top here. But when you go into like a rock star life, they hit upon so much in this two and a half hour runtime of, you know, his stuff down in 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 Memphis and his impact and his drug addiction, his women abuse, his his claim to fame of like being inspired by the music in the black community. There's so much that they're trying to cram in here that in a weird way, I almost found it refreshing that Tom Hanks was in this movie being like this character that was like over the top because it took away from how serious the rest of the movie was. And I think you have Austin Butler literally putting in a performance of a lifetime in this movie. Like I just, it's been such a long time. I was thinking about this. I think it was like Ray Charles with Ray was the last time that I seen an actor totally like just become another person. And, it, and this is not like prosthetics, like, you know, Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour, like his great performance, don't get me wrong. But it's, it's the prosthetics, right? You, you, you forget it's him because of all this, this makeup and hair. With this, it's just like the voice. It's, it's the commitment, just like it was with Jamie Foxx. And you watch this movie and you just, again, you fall in love with the characters, right? It's, it, Austin Butler becomes Elvis and the movie's about Elvis and you fall in love with that character and you like the journey. And it's like critics are like, ah, it's overlooking certain things in his life, like these biopics that... We all know nowadays, you have to have rights to tell this story. And there's gonna be very few people 
who are going to let you shit on their <laughs> shit on that person. They're not going to say, oh yeah, you know what? Show how terrible he was when like family members are still alive. They're not going to do that. Just like we saw with Bohemian Rhapsody. The band didn't want to go through all the dark stuff in there. They, they touched upon it just like they do in Elvis. But it, it does glance over things. But the bottom line is you still have a character and you're telling a story about fame and fortune and like this love of, of, of music, right? And a love of like performing and what it is to feel the crowd and wanting to travel around the world. And, you know, sadly, Elvis never got to do that. He only got to do it within the States and because of stories that we got to hear in this movie. But it was great because you connected with the character and you understood it's, it's a dreamer movie, right? Elvis was a dreamer. And those are the movies that I think for me are the ones that I resonate with the most because those are the ones that are kind of universal in their messaging, which is why when you see a movie like Elvis, people will clap at the end of it when you go see it with a regular audience because it gives them this, this level of hope. But at the same time, Elvis is not a happy movie. Like at the end of it, it's, it's kind of sad. But it gives you that that full meal. You get that that like the climb of fa to fame, the 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 life of fame, the bad side of fame, and then like trying to find your voice within there, and then the tragedy of what it is. And so I think it's a really well structured movie as a whole. Again, not perfect, but very few movies are. Right, and in going into the movie, it was moving very fast. I thought, oh no, this is going to be one of these rushed biopics. Yeah, visually stunning as it yeah. was, but but it something about it hooked me in, and I didn't feel like it was rushed. But it, in the beginning, I wasn't sure if that's where we were going. I think that's because it's Baz Luhrmann, right? I mean, Baz Luhrmann as a filmmaker, very hit or miss, and as much as again you can have visual style and you can never take that away from Baz Luhrmann. Baz Luhrmann has a, a very specific look and feel to all his movies, the way he incorporates modern music with old school music. He does, it's his signature style. And what I was worried about with Elvis was, I thought like Great Gatsby, where it overtook the movie, right? Like it was so much of like modern music in there and it was so over stylized that you just, you kind of forgot, like this is a great piece of literature with Great Gatsby and that's all like lost in the spectacle. But with Elvis, I think it's weird because I think I saw an interview with him that he wasn't like the biggest Elvis fan in the world, right? Like he wasn't, like you would think when you're doing a biopic, you would pick someone who's like obsessed. And I think he, he admitted that he really wasn't obsessed. He knew of him and he was kind of fascinated with him. But he wasn't like, oh my God, I have to do this. Like, this is not like his dream project. But like, he somehow made it into his, his dream project. And I think that's kind of captured in Austin Butler, right? It's like, I love movies where they find an actor who has really not been taken seriously before. And you put him in this world and you create this story around him. And everyone just like, people who hate Elvis can say at the very least that Austin Butler didn't give at least a good performance. Some people might be like me where they're extreme and go like, this is one of the best performances that I've seen in like 10 years. But most people would say that at least it's a good performance. 
people are mixed on the movie, but the performance. So I think Baz Luhrmann really does with this one. I think he understood that it was more about the story and more about the character than it was about the visual. He wanted to create his sense of style. He had to put it in there, which is why if you watch the first half of that movie, it's much more of a traditional Baz Luhrmann movie with everything he does thrown at you. But the second half of it is way more of just kind of like, okay, this is a story. This is where like things, where the shit hits the fan, things are gonna get real here and we're gonna focus on that. And it, it really is kind of uneven to be truthful, but I think that second half is so strong that it actually makes up for the first half. Right, and I was worried about that. Would the, would the payoff in the end wane because everything was up front? And would you say that's almost a smart thing for a filmmaker not to be too obsessed with someone's life story because it's going to be biased if they go in sort of neutral? Yeah, I mean, I mean this ties into so many different things. I think being a fan of someone is very difficult now. Because again, going back to the internet, it's almost like, oh, you're the go-to. So this is no surprise to anyone who knows me. I'm a big Kristen Stewart fan and I'm a big Kristen Stewart supporter. And I have been since Speak when it premiered at Sundance. But I can admit that not every movie she does or has been a part of is good. Sometimes she's not good in the movie. Sometimes the movie's not good. Sometimes she's the best part of the movie. Sometimes the movie's great and everything's great. As a filmmaker, I agree. I think it's, it's really hard because if you really idolize someone, it can go either one or two ways. It can go so extreme where you're just like the ultimate fanboy, fangirl, and you're just like making this love letter that it's just like, oh my God, I idolize this person. I love them so much. And then if you don't, you have on the other end of that, if you have someone who doesn't know anything about the person, you run the risk of kind of not being accurate and not feeling the heart. Because biopics in a weird way need that middle ground. You have to love someone in, in, in to, on a certain extent, but you also have to realize that they're flawed and that they're not perfect and that they have dark sides. And that's, I think, what really stood out to me about this. And it, it even Rocket Man, right? Rocket Man, Elton John was so involved with it, right? But Elton John's the type of celebrity who's not afraid of what people think because he hosts Oscar part. He's like the one of the most beloved people in the industry, you know? Like, so he's not really afraid to show his dark side of things. But is Queen afraid of showing their dark side? Probably, because they're still touring and they're still making money. Freddie's not here anymore, but they're still part of it. So they don't want anyone to kind of see something and kind of view it and go like, oh, I don't know about those guys anymore. Right. And that's where I think you you have this really fine line of everything. Right. You have how much do family members have this involvement in this movie? Are they are they controlling it too much that it's not accurate enough? 
And then do you have a filmmaker who's capable of telling the story that it doesn't feel like a documentary? You know, like where it's actually going to be, to me, documentaries are so one-sided, majority of them, right? You're watching a documentary and you're kind of like, okay, this is like set out to be like, tell me like Michael Moore. He hates Trump. I know you hate Trump. You know, like it, no, no. So like you're not watching, surprise, you're yeah. watching this movie, you're watching this documentary. And you're not surprised. No one who likes Trump's going to watch this movie. So like, who are you making this movie for? But when you go to, to biopics too, I think that it has that problem too, because you want to learn something when you watch a biopic that you don't that you don't always need the, the the clean and shiny version of it. You want some darkness, but there's a there's a balance. And I, I, I don't know. I feel like biopics are always getting such like mixed reactions from critics and rightfully so because they either go too heavy or not heavy enough. And there's like, there's, there's no in between with all of them. And one of my favorite movies of recent years, and I, and I enjoyed the fact that it was more of the spectacle, is The Greatest Showman. Because The Greatest Showman is not trying to be this biopic, right? It, they, they literally made up characters in the movie. It was just supposed to be a musical that's fun and entertaining. And then when I'm reading critics, I was like, they didn't show the dark side of his life. I'm like, at no point did this movie say that it was going to be this hard-hitting tale about this. It was supposed to be a lighthearted thing. So I understand why some people watch Elvis and they criticize of how they you know, glossed over things and how they watch Bohemian Rhapsody. But at the end of the day, these movies are appealing to the masses. The, uh, what, we, what, we, what we as film critics sometimes want is not what the studio wants, nor what audiences want. That's a good point because in the theater was a couple that could not stay off their phone. They were online shopping, but they eventually put it away. Right. So obviously it got their attention enough from close to the beginning. And then there was another family that was at one point standing up, just talking. But but we were able to finish the movie as a group. So very diverse group that was in there, but somehow their attention, as much as they kind of wanted to squirm and do things, was kept. And, and, and I agree on, on, on showing the different sides is, is difficult in the film. One film that I'm kind of a broken record on is this John DeLorean movie, which was a movie within a movie. So it was several independent filmmakers who had, were hoping to make a documentary on him. And it was a narrative, it was his family members, and they all came together to kind of give different sides of the story of how it, it transpired. And I thought that was fascinating. I hadn't seen too many like that. Yeah. So, um, and Alec Baldwin plays uh, John DeLorean, and he's as himself, contemplating what what would John have done in this scene and things. So that was seemed like it was more of an all-around representation, but I get it. We only want to see sort of one version of the person. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's all based on who you talk to, right? So the biggest issue with biopics now, right, is that you have the movie that the studio wants, you have the movie that the director wants, you have the movie that the audience wants, you have the movie that the critics want. And it's very, very rare that all four of those people are going to agree. And I think that's a huge problem, which is why I think biopics always get such a mixed reaction is because it leans in one, like, right? Like Rocket Man was leaning into the dark side and because it's Elton John, it did really well. 
but it didn't do as well as a Bohemian Rhapsody because that leaned into more of the spectacle and more of the music. You have 30 minutes at the end where you have that, um, what is that, aid? I forgot the name of it. But they have the, the, the aid scene, live aid scene at the end. And they're just performing. I mean, that is still probably one of the best scenes in a movie in the last decade because it's just, it's just, it's, it's musical spectacle. It's Queen, why we love Queen. And Rocket Man, even though they kind of had like almost like a Broadway approach to it of like, here's a musical number, we're gonna bust into a musical song here and then look gonna go through a set and blah, 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 blah. It's great. But people really love those moments where it's just like 30 minutes of like, this is what I want, this is what I want. And again, critics, not so much. Audiences, yes. Same with musicals. People want, they, they want to feel like they're watching a, a stage musical on the big screen. And sometimes those numbers are not big enough. They feel very small. So yeah, it's, it's really trying. I don't, I don't envy people who are doing these, these jobs anymore because you're appealing to so many different people. And it's really difficult now because of what we talked about earlier, social media. Everyone has a voice. And everyone has something to say. So what one person might love, another person hates. And it depends on who picks that up and who runs it as a headline as to whether or not that movie will, will sink or float. What makes comic book movies great? Another question that depends on who you ask. To me, my favorite comic book movies are the ones that embrace being a comic book. We've seen a really big pivot in this over the last couple of years. I think Nolan was the one who kind of changed the game with this, with Batman Begins. Because we then approached superhero movies as being grounded in the real world. And as much as I enjoyed Nolan's views on that and his style and what he's done with the characters, He's almost set up this, <laughs> this stage for many comic book movies to fail because we want them almost to be grounded in reality now. And again, going back to my childhood and growing up as a kid of the 80s, I grew up with Adam West Batman, which is like so silly and over the top. And then you had, of course, Christopher Reeves with... Superman, Tim Burton with Batman and Batman Returns. And they all had this very much like different world. I was escaping to a different world. And then Nolan came in and he was like, no, it could be grounded in reality. And then we've seen this even with Joker. We've seen it with the Matt Reeves Batman where it's very grounded. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you got kind of the Marvel, Marvel Cinematic Universe that they've been trying to tie in real world issues into this comic book space. But I, I know I sound like I'm beating a dead horse here, but it all comes back down to story and characters. If a character is well-developed, whether it's a comic book, movie, or any type of movie, you're gonna find an audience. You're gonna connect, people are gonna connect, right? 
people like Tony Stark because he's a cool character, but he's also a well-developed character. Robert Downey Jr. really made that character his own. And while a lot of people say that a lot of Tony Stark is just Robert Downey Jr., that's the way the character was written. It was written for him. So you're just, you may be just watching him, but you grow to like him and the stories help elevate him. And that's what's great about it. So to me, you, you, you can have all these characters. It's what you do with their progression. How the movie starts, where it goes in the middle and how it ends is whether it's going to be a good comic book movie or not. Is it gonna leave you wanting more? Are you gonna to wanna to see more of this character? Because we all know, and unfortunately nowadays, one movie is never enough. One movie is never enough. So as much as I like Joker, and I was hoping that Joker was gonna be a one-off, there's a Joker 2 coming, and it's gonna be a musical, and all these people are gonna be in it. Yeah, I, I'm curious to see it, don't get me wrong, but the reason why people like that movie and why people connected with that movie is that, again, they liked what Joaquin Phoenix brought to the table. They liked that character. They liked the way that it was written, what, it, what he was able to do with that material. So everything else, sure, the visual style, everyone loved about it, you know, everyone referencing, oh, Martin Scorsese look and all this stuff, but, if you take Joaquin Phoenix out of that, does the movie like what would that movie be with another actor? And that's that's what you really you really got to focus on is that character, and who's I guess also I should say whose cast is that character, right? Because do those people become the character that you want them to be? You get lost in Joaquin Phoenix as Joker, right? We get that, we like that Iron Man. We know it's Robert Downey Jr. And a lot of these movies with so many characters nowadays, Eternals, I, I, I don't mean to keep crapping on this movie, but like to me, you have too many actors, no character develop, development, no story. Like, where is this going? I have no idea. I walked away from that movie. If I never seen those characters again, I'd be completely fine. But you, you want to spend more time with characters and character development is so important especially in superhero movies, because you know that they're gonna keep making them. So like if, a, if an actor is bad in a role and the story doesn't work, it, again, doesn't matter the production value, doesn't matter the costumes, doesn't matter the hair and makeup, it's, it's not gonna win people over. And that's what you're seeing right now, I think with the phases, this last phase of Marvel, is that you're seeing so many things get thrown at you. You're seeing, <laughs> you're seeing Sam Raimi's fingerprints all over Doctor Strange, but yet people are complaining like, oh, did this person not watch WandaVision? Because Elizabeth Olsen is weird in this movie. She doesn't seem to like realize what happened in WandaVision. And what is Benedict Cumberbatch doing here? He was so <laughs> different in this one compared to how he was in the other movies. And you watch in a weird way, even Thor, right? It's like, okay, like he's he's out of shape and now like all of a sudden, like he's back in shape and like a montage. <laughs> it's, I don't know. It, it, they're, they're losing the, the, the writing. It's becoming style over substance is what I've, what I've been seeing with Marvel phase four. 
is style over substance. There's so much style and they're trying to combine these two ideas. Like there's a Taika Waititi movie here and then there's the Marvel movie here. There's a Sam Raimi movie here and then there's the Marvel movie here. And you, you really need to believe in your director and your cast and your screenwriters to tell the story they want us to tell. I mean, this kind of takes me back to, you know, Zack Snyder, right? I mean, Zack Snyder's Justice League that came out on HBO Max after fan support for like, seems like almost a decade, but it was only like five years. <laughs> but the outpouring of support was because everyone who knew Zack Snyder knew that that movie that they put in theaters wasn't his vision. And they weren't happy about it. And that's why there was so much of a fight for it because these are beloved characters that people know that literally decades upon decades of comic books were written about. And yes, he didn't follow the formula that probably Warner Brothers wanted, but he wanted to tell his vision and they, they mess with his vision. And that's the thing about his movies that I respect him about. You can watch Man of Steel. You can watch Batman v Superman. You can watch just New Justice League, the complete four-hour cut of it. And you can hate it. It's completely fine. But at least you know it's the movie that he wanted to make. I think it's really bad for comic book movies nowadays when you feel like a director is being dictated what they're doing. They're not, they don't have creative control. They get partial creative control and then it's almost like someone steps in and is like, no, 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 you gotta do this, 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 and this. As long as you do this, this, and this, you can keep going. And it just becomes a total mess. And I, I, I it's weird that I'm saying this because Marvel was so always the leg up on DC for like a long time there because they had a formula. And I'm not saying that movies, every movie needs a formula, but right now it's just like, it's so inconsistent. I, I, I walk out of a movie and I just kind of go, oh, okay, like, I'm like, this, this was awesome. This was terrible. Like, I really don't know. Like the last like two or three Marvel movies were like five out of tens for me because I'm like, I like things so much about these, but I hate so much about these. So yeah, it's, it's, I think it's changed so much over the years, you know, because again, you go into the, the time of the 80s and 90s where it was like campy and it really sort of like really embraced what a comic book movie was and it wasn't worried about the reality. And now we're kind of with the spectacle, we're with the substance. And I think it's really, you know, and this is no, no criticism because I think Nolan was great. Christopher Nolan did such a great job of telling such a grounded story that you really felt like this could happen anywhere. But in a weird way, it almost like no one knew how to react to it because you only have one Christopher Nolan. That's the thing with him as a filmmaker. He has a very unique vision. So he can tell a story. And I think a lot of people try to replicate that even with the spectacle. And he can't match it because for him, what always came first was, yes, it's a big, big scale movie, but he always cared about the story. He always cared about the characters. And he picked the right actors to play those characters. Yeah, and even a smaller comic book movie uh, American Splendor. Yes. So Paul Giamatti as Harvey Pankar or Oh my God, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he in, from from when when you saw a little bit, you heard some of his voice and different things, and and you can go back to old Letterman uh, interviews, and and you felt like that was him. He he really like embodied this guy, this this guy that was in this tough spot that felt trapped in his life, 
and and felt like he wasn't going to be able to do anything but be this file clerk. Yeah, oh, that's a great movie, by the way. That was that was another one that I saw very early on, uh, and I I just love that that film. I mean, Paul Giamatti. <laughs> Speaking of comic book movies, remember when he was in that Spider-Man movie and so underused and never used again? Yeah, it's very bizarre. But yeah, Paul, Paul Giamatti is still one of the greatest actors working today. Sure. So it sounds like, for lack of a better term, if an actor's actor is is the main character, is this superhero or, or whatever, anti-hero, whatever, then, then it works. But if it's too surface of a performance, it's not going to work. Yeah, I mean, that's that's... That really is a great point and a, and a great way of looking at things. It's like, does the actor fit the role? Like, do they encompass what this character is? You know, and that's why, I mean, there's always been this debate about Batman, right? But like, to me, Michael Keaton will always be the best Batman because I literally just felt like he brought himself to the performance. Just like you can never tell me that Robert Downey Jr. wasn't like the perfect Iron Man. There's just certain actors that become these characters, and I know that they have these different versions of them. The only one that's really weird that like every actor who's kind of taken on besides Jared Leto um, is Joker. Like Joker, for some reason, whoever takes on that character brings something unique to it. You know, I mean, even going back to Cesar Romano, right? From like, I mean, the cheesiness and the overtop clowniness of that. He was great as that character. Then you got Jack Nicholson in the role. You got Heath Ledger. And I'm going to skip over Jared Leto and go right to Joaquin Phoenix. Like every one of those were like so uniquely different. And I think with Batman, right, it's, it's kind of like the mystery of like it. But like only Michael Keaton was able to balance the Bruce Wayne and the Batman. Where like you watch Robert Pattinson as Batman, and he's he's good at Batman. Bruce Wayne, yeah, you know. And I, I, we don't have to talk about George Clooney. He's another one we can, we can just go you know glance over. You know, Val Kilmer was probably you know again that was more again coming back to the script. Like that was a, not a great script that he had to work with, but you know he tried. And then Christian Bale, I feel like again great Bruce Wayne, the Batman. He never got the voice down. Christian Bale, as great of an actor as he is, I just felt like he never got that that voice down. And which is why he's always being made fun of, like, I'm Batman. You know, like everyone always like jokes about that because he just he wasn't able to fully get it. So that's why I always say that Michael Keaton is 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 top dog for Batman. How about Margot Kidder, Lois Lane? Did she embody Lois Lane? Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, and that's the, the the big disconnect, right? With a lot of people had with, um, oh my God, Amy Adams with Lois Lane, right? Like, she didn't really become the character. She didn't really get enough depth and enough story. She just kind of like was underdeveloped. A, a character that is so iconic and so well known and loved. And how many Superman? TV shows have there been and like all this thing, Superman and Lois, Lois and Clark, like all this stuff. There's been all these stories and that that character really deserves to have someone really do them justice on the big screen. Because I don't know, you're right, since going back to the original Superman, I don't know if anyone is, has ever played that character well. 
That's interesting because everything Amy Adams does otherwise, I haven't seen that performance, so I okay. can't speak to it. But I love her and everything yeah. else that she does, so I don't know. I'll have to actually watch it and see. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, mm -hmm. it's not that she's bad in it. It's just that it's a character that's not written well. Hmm. I mean, it's it's almost like going into the superhero conversation. It's It's almost like Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman 1984, Wonder Woman in Zack Snyder's Justice League, okay? So Wonder Woman as a movie up until the last act is is badass. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Gal Gadot in that performance is just so great. She embodies the role. She becomes that character. And she inspired so many, you know, young girls. I mean, I just remember that press day coming out and like how many people you know, little girls and women were like so empowered by her performance. And then you you see her in Zack Snyder's Justice League and she's, she's, she's again, she's, she's that way. And then I don't know what happened in 1984. Like I'm not someone who hates that movie. I know a lot of people hate that movie. But she's like, she's there and the rest of the movie's failing her. She's like doing her, her best to make this stuff work. But she's got Pedro Pascal like, hamming it up up to like a 90. I don't know what he's doing in that movie. <laughs> There's like this weird rock storyline. And then, you know, let alone when the critics got all, got all over it with there's like subjective rape or some stuff with rape going on in the movie, which like I didn't even like bother paying attention to. But like she did. She became, you know, because of that, you know, and I, I credit Zack Snyder for that because Zack Snyder took the chance. Patty, you know, Patty Jenkins put her in the, the first movie that really got her to shine. But Zack Snyder hired her. He's the one who saw the potential and, and, and made her the character. And then Patty Jenkins pushed her to the next level. And then in a weird way, kind of pushed her, <laughs> threw her down the stairs in the next movie. So uh, I, I don't know. And I, again, I don't hate 1984. I just think it's a missed opportunity. But I, I felt so I was thinking about that movie and I feel so bad for for Gal Gadot because she's sitting there and she's trying so hard <laughs> at the end of that movie and she's really pouring her heart and soul into that performance and she's really great in it. But it's just like that script, that script is it's not good. It's not good. Which are you more excited to see? Nope or Black Adam? <laughs> uh, nope. Just because it's an original idea. I love Dwayne Johnson, so like I'm super pumped about it, but nope, original concept will win all the time for me. Again, it ties back to going to an independent movie theater at such a late age and seeing movies like Lost and Delirious and Ghost World. Original stories just have a, have a special place in my heart. And as much as I love the spectacle, if you kind of put them side by side and say, do you want to watch something that's original or do you want to see something that's connected to a known franchise? Nine times out of 10, I'm going to pick the original concept. And with Jordan Peele, I mean, how can you not love him as a filmmaker? He's, he's, he's bold, he's ambitious, and get out. I, I remember seeing Get Out at Sundance. They did a midnight screening, it was a surprise screening. And I 
watch that with a small crowd. They had it at the library. The library is one of the smaller venues at Sundance. It only holds about like three to 400 people. And at two o'clock in the morning, because it's a midnight screening, two o'clock in the morning, you hear that audience just erupt with applause and connect and see the reactions that night and the next morning. And then like, again, going back to our earlier conversation about being able to experience things, being the first to experience things, you feel like you saw something special, right? And, and seeing Jordan Peele, his directorial debut, seeing him do something that you had no expectations that he had in him. Like who expected the guy who was on Key and Peele to make a horror movie that had so much depth and like made so many white people uncomfortable, right? I mean, like it was, it was so much, it was so funny reading a lot of my white colleagues reviews of that movie. Like everyone was like, he really understood. Like it was like, he really made me feel uncomfortable. And like everyone trying to under act like they understood black culture at that point. It was, it was so hilarious. And then, you know, Jordan Peele took the second movie, um, oh my God, what was the second movie? Us, to uh, South by Southwest. And I, and I remember seeing that and the first two acts of that movie worked really well. And I was really disappointed with the last act. I, I didn't think that movie really was on the same level as Get Out. But this looks like it's in a totally different direction. I have no idea what this is. It like, looks like it's a sci-fi comedy. And every trailer, like, it has elements to it where I'm kind of like, this is either going to be like a complete train wreck or this is going to be like one of the best movies of the year. And I, I really can't decide because there's just things in the trailer that you're watching this and you're like, what's happening? There's cows up here flying. Okay, like, is this Twister? And then you're like sitting there and then you have like kind of like the social commentary down the on the ground there. And I'm like, this looks brilliant. So it, it, Universal definitely knows what they're doing with him. And I'm so glad that they signed on to, to the, the Jordan Peele roller coaster ride because I don't know if audiences are quite ex know what they're expecting with this one. I don't, I don't think people, I don't think any of us know. So I'm very curious to see it. So of Nope or Black Adam, which do you think will be the bigger hit for 2022? Just from the little that you've seen. It's hard to say because you have, Jordan Peele has such a name behind him because those two movies were such massive hits that I, that I almost want to say that that's going to be bigger. But there's the uncertainty there, right? The thing about comic book movies is that you already have a built-in audience that are going to see it. And Dwayne Johnson is arguably the biggest movie star in the world. And like he sells movies. He's one of the, he's like Tom Cruise, right? He sells movies. People know who Dwayne Johnson is. They go to movies because Dwayne Johnson's in it. Just like people go to Tom Cruise movies because Tom Cruise is in it. Top Gun was a success, not because it was a Top Gun movie, but because it was a Tom Cruise movie. So, I mean, it's a good movie regardless, but I'm just saying like, that's the reason why butts went in seats because of Tom Cruise. 
So it's really hard because I do feel it depends on the reaction of Nope from critics and audiences to dictate whether that's going to be the big movie or Black Adam. So right now, I'm going to say Black Adam just because it's the safer because it has a two for two. It has the super the superhero element and it has Dwayne Johnson where I feel like Jordan Peele has the name, but it also has that original idea that can go either way. What are your five most anticipated movies for 2022? We're halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> we are halfway through. Um, well, it's not Avatar. <laughs> there is a Christmas musical comedy coming out that everyone's watching this is like what with ryan reynolds and will ferrell coming out that i think is going to be a ton of fun i i i have nothing to base this off of no trailer just that it's a musical comedy set around christmas and i have a very big soft spot for ryan reynolds so i'm definitely very very excited about that i'm going to say don't worry, darling. Olivia Wilde's newest movie. She she blew me away with Booksmart. I've always been a fan of her as an actress. I, I know people are kind of lukewarm on, lukewarm on her as an actress. I've always been a fan, especially when, again, going back to the indie movies, when she started doing like a lot of indie roles, I felt like she was just superb in them. So I'm very curious. This looks like such a big scale film. Like Booksmart felt like a small indie comedy. Like it was like a coming of an age indie comedy. But this feels like it's a massive scale. And I mean, the cast with, you know, Florence Pugh and, and Chris Pine, it feels like it's big. So I'm really looking forward to that one. I'm trying to think what else. Oh, Shazam, the, the second Shazam. David, David F. Sandberg, such a big fan of him. Uh, going back to Lights Out, I love the first Shazam movie. Talk about talk about just a fun, fun movie. A, a reason people go to the movies. Just to have a good time, get a little bit of a spectacle, get a little bit of a comedy. Zachary Levi in that, just 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 perfect again, perfect casting. We we're talking about a superhero casting earlier. Somebody who really loves superheroes and wanted to be one and then he got to cast as one. Perfection there with casting. So that's three. Um, I'm really excited about Amsterdam. Uh, I know that people are a little bit hesitant on that because of the director, but I think that's a, a one of those ensemble pieces that is going to have a lot of great performances in it and is going to have a really good story and then i guess i i mean how could i not say the martin scorsese movie right the killers of the flower moon like it's scorsese and leonardo dicaprio that has worked in the past so i'm pretty sure it's going to work again and i'm gonna i'm gonna sneak another one in i have to say babylon i can't believe i forgot about babylon damien chazelle's latest uh with margot roby Cannot wait. I saw, saw a small teaser for it at uh, CinemaCon. Totally up my alley. Totally excited for it. How would you rate the movies of 2022 to previous years? Ooh, that's... 
truthfully, <laughs> um, I don't know if the industry has fully recovered since 2020. Um, there's definitely been some bright spots this year. And there, there has been some real signs of, of hope at the, at the movie theater. But blockbusters this year, so far, outside of Top Gun Maverick, I'm not really feeling them. I'm really not. It, it's, it, I, as much as I like Batman, I felt like it was 30 minutes too long. Again, the ground into reality, there's like two movies there. Like there's literally like one and a half movies. There's literally like a cutting cutting point in Batman where it's kind of like, okay, this movie could have ended here and the sequel could have started here, but it keeps going. And then you kind of get like half of a movie. Doctor Strange, Disappointment, Jurassic World, Dominion. Oh, talk... I, Broke my heart. I mean, Jurassic Park is one of the greatest blockbusters of all time. You could have that on record. It's one of the best movies. It's like seeing dinosaurs come to life for the first time. But the characters, every character you connected with, the, the kids weren't annoying. You actually like, you got into the kids. You were like, you, you felt the sense of wonder that they felt watching them. You felt the fear, the panic. It was like the ultimate like blockbuster. You just, you couldn't look away from that movie. And it's, it's amazing how 25 years later, you can still watch that movie and it holds up. And, and, and Steven Spielberg, really one of his crowning achievements as a filmmaker. And Jurassic Park Dominion, uh, 100% one of the most disappointing, if not the most disappointing movie that I've seen in 2022 so far. They had all these great trailers leading up to this movie, which like threw in the legacy characters. You got all these characters back from the original movie. You're like, oh my God, this has this great story to build upon about we're gonna, we're gonna finally see dinosaurs and humans living together. That's what we've been promised. And it just goes back and does the same thing over and over again. And the characters have not a single brain cell in their freaking heads. I, I, it's just a dialogue, terrible editing. Uh, just what a what a disaster. What a disaster. And, and then, you know, Thor, you know, again, it's fun enough. But compared to what we've seen before, like it's it's no Black Panther. It's no Guardians. It doesn't have that. I mean, Top Gun Maverick right now is is that is the movie that is saving the summer. And the uh, the, the the again, going back to Indies. Is indie movies better this year? 100%. With Marcel the Shell coming out and the other great movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, those are some great movies. And that's why you're seeing more and more audiences kind of seeing those movies because they're good. Scott, off the top of your head, what are the biggest movies that have gone straight to streaming? Coda, Tick, Tick, Boom, Mitchells versus the Machines. <laughs> That's probably 
All, oh, I mean, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, I think, is, is a good example of that, too. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's a – to me, as someone who loves movies, most movies that end up on streaming don't have all the elements that make them worthy of going to the movie theater. I mean, I think we would have seen Coda – in a movie theater if it wasn't for the pandemic. But I think a lot of these movies, uh, again, I, I don't mean to crap on Netflix when I say this, is that Netflix to me is the most guilty of all this, is that they have movies, so many movies that have right elements, but they never have the movie. They never have the movie that embodies everything. So Irishman, there's a great movie there, not at three hours. There's a great movie there somewhere at two. It's like you have to have control of that. Mank, there's a great movie there. Don't know where it is. It's lost somewhere. But they have them. They just need to kind of like have more. I know we want creative control for our filmmakers, but you have to sometimes look at a cut of a movie and kind of say, this doesn't work. Even a movie like The Prom, which is, is I would say, is a, a streaming movie that I actually really wished went to movie theaters. That movie is even 20 minutes too long. And I think there's a struggle with a lot of streaming platforms is this creative freedom of being able to make the movie that they want. But it doesn't really hold up to a, a, a movie goer because there's there's elements to it that maybe we as film critics or industry professionals like the fact that, oh yeah, look at this. He really had the time to fill out the scene and like it goes on. And yeah, like that works. But to an average person, you're going to watch this and you're like, why is this scene still going? I'm so bored. Like, come on, move this along. And I think that's something that's that struggles a lot with streaming movies. The one thing that I will say positively about Netflix with streaming is that they really have reinvented the romantic comedy. What they have done for that genre is, is great because they, they inspired a group of young filmmakers to kind of start off telling these, these cute rom-com movies. And that's something that we lost in the Hollywood system. There, there's so few good rom-coms and I've watched so many of them on Netflix and, and, and even like the other streaming platforms. Like Hulu had one um, called The Fire Island a couple weeks ago. And that that was really good, too. What's the best rom-com? <laughs> best rom-com. Mm, I mean, we have to go with the classic, right? When Harry Met Sally. I mean, Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan, can't beat that. And then I guess closely followed up by Pretty Woman. So it's been it's been a couple decades then since. Yeah, I mean they don't really have. I love rom coms, but like, they're not. There's not that many of them that feel all that special. So, uh, speaking of which, one that actually does come to mind is Set It Up, which is actually a Netflix movie, and that's with Zoe Deutsch and Glenn Powell. I think that's one of the, the most charming ones that I re I've seen in recent memory. How would you compare your excitement level for streaming movies versus theatrical movies? There's, n I know this contradicts something that I said earlier about 
You don't have to see every movie in a theater. But there is something exciting about a movie having a marketing campaign. So when you see a movie and there's something to build towards it and seeing that on the big screen and going to a movie theater and seeing a poster or seeing a standee, it adds to it. That gets really lost with streaming movies because Bo Burnham jokes about this all the time. Like there's movies and TV shows and there's content. I feel like a lot of what's on streaming is content. It's not really good enough to be labeled as a movie or good enough to be labeled as a TV show, but really like the kind of some stuff that you would watch just to pass the time. So while there have been some good stuff, both movies and TV shows on stream, I mean, TV shows, there's no question. On streaming platforms, killing it. I mean, movies on streaming platforms are not there yet. TV shows are long past. I mean, some of the best stuff that you can watch right now are TV shows on streamers, whether it's Severance, whether it's Stranger Things, their Squid Game, they're there. Movie-wise, theaters is still where it's at. And then every once in a while, you'll have the exception to a rule. So to, to answer your question, definitely theatrical movies because of the campaign. There's a hype around it. You get excited. You get, to, oh my God, a trailer's dropping. Oh my God, a poster dropped. Oh my God, casting news. You, you get to see all of this. And yes, you get the trades right about the streaming movies. And yes, you get a trailer for that. But there's no event. It doesn't feel like anyone's coming, a, coming together. Going to the movies is an event. And when you have a movie, whether it's a Black Adam or a Nope, that's like you just you feel it. There's a there's a buildup to it. You're like, I can't wait to see this. I, I, I can't wait. Oh, look, there's a trailer coming out for this. The Gray Man. Oh, OK. I'll see it when I see it. And also to the, the half hour in the theater before it starts when people are finding their seats or nowadays we have assigned seating and, and, and there is there's an anticipation. And, and you also too kind of like look around and I wonder how they're going to react to it. I wonder if they're going to like it, you know. Are they going to leave? Or, you know. Yeah, there's nothing like, I mean, there's nothing like that. Being, and again, something about film festivals that make it special. Just like going to a premiere, going to a film, a film festival is a very unique experience because you're seeing a lot of these things for the first time. So the reaction you're getting are very natural and you don't know what people are going to expect. They have really no trailers going into the movie. Sometimes there's not even images. There's usually just a plot description and maybe one image. And you walk into something and it, it's completely clean. You have no expectations. So in that, in that regard, that's part of that experience that makes it special. But when you go to a regular movie theater, right, it's the crowd around you. Do they laugh at certain moments? Do they cry at certain moments? Are they reacting? And then trailers. I mean, I, I hate to say this, but as much as I, every time I get an email about a trailer, I click on it and I look at it on my phone, trailers play differently on the big screen. So when I sit there and I'm watching 30 minutes of trailers, 
I'm really starting like, sometimes I really like go, wow, that looked better now. Like I watched it on my computer and I was like, eh. but now I'm watching on the big screen, that looks great. And other times I kind of go, oh yeah, that looks just as crappy here. But at the same time, like that's something that is part of the experience. And you get to, to get to see like, oh, what am I gonna get hyped up for next? You lose that on streaming. Once the streaming movie ends, right? You get a little thing on the bottom. Do you want to watch Dope Sick? I don't know. I don't know if I want to watch Dope Sick right now. Nah, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, that's what it is. You, you almost like the theatrical experience is so special for so many reasons because it's a shared experience. But also there's a buildup to it. You literally get to go to a movie, you get to see a bunch of trailers and kind of go, ooh, that looks good. And then you hear someone else go, it's like shit. I don't want to see that, you know. And it's and it's great. It's that, but it it's it. It sets up the next one. Oh, I'm gonna to come to the theater again to see, you know, Black Adam. All right, great. What are you gonna see after Black Adam? Oh, look, look. They just showed the Don't Worry Darling trailer. Okay, I'm gonna go see that next. You don't get that. You don't get that with streaming. It's it's lost. It's lost. And it also the discovery of things in theatrical is so much longer. Right, it's like people go to see movies multiple times in theaters, and they talk about it like, "Oh, I went back to see Thor for the second time, and I had a better experience." Or, "Man, those those negatives that I had even worse the second time around." Streaming is like people watch it once, and that's it; they're done. And you're forced. Is this so important? So important about theatrical, is that you don't pause. You have to sit and you have to experience it in one sitting. You might have to go to the bathroom and get up and leave and miss something in the movie. But you have to pay attention to it. When you're at home, and let, again, so much stuff is out there, you're going to pause at nine times. Oh, the door's ringing. Hey, you hungry? You want a snack? Let's go into the kitchen and get that. You're really like, if you want a snack in the movie theater and you're really in a really good movie, there's like a pause, like, I really want popcorn, but this movie's really good. So I don't think I'm going to get up right now. So that's, I think, all those elements are why theatrical is better. Sure. I mean, there'd be a few times where you're like, you know what? This is due at Blockbuster tomorrow. I'll watch it one more time. Yeah, I really yeah, want to get yeah. my money's worth, you know? Yeah. But but that was rare. Yeah, it, it was like one and done sort of thing. But I, I agree. Yeah, the, stre the streaming stuff is just, there's so few things that I watch on streaming where like, I immediately have a reaction of wanting to watch it again. It's just just very few and far between. What do you think about the Gray Man having a is it a one week theatrical run? Yes. Okay. So this is Netflix's approach to playing nicey nice with the theaters. Um, I think being a disruptor for so many years has really kind of come back and bit them in the ass, and again. Don't get me wrong, they've done so much in terms of content and then TV shows, creating so many great iconic TV shows. You know, their whole platform was pretty much launched on House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. But they really did set the bar of kind of like, we're going to produce our own movies, we're going to produce our own TV shows, and they're going to be on our platform and our platform only and we own the rights to them, and we don't need theaters, and we don't need this. And 
they sort of had to figure out a solution because they wanted to be part of the awards conversation. And their way that they did it because of the Academy of Rules is that they said, you only have to play in one theater in New York and LA and you have to play for a week. So they did the bare minimum. And when you start having movies with these big actors, whether it's Red Notice, whether it's The Gray Man, you're not gonna have that same experience watching it at ne on, on Netflix at home as you are in a theater. Because these movies are made, like these are, these are directors and stars who like make movies that are there for a theater. You're, you have you hire the Russo brothers and you're gonna get one week and it's not even playing at AMC or Regal. It's only playing at Cinemark because they haven't negotiated their contracts yet of getting it because they don't know what's gonna happen. And also they disrupted the industry for so long that people are like, I don't think as willing to play with them. Like they don't, they wanna come to the sandbox now and be like, hey, can I have your shovel? And I wanna dig with you. And people are a little bit more resistant to it. And I think, sadly, that does a lot of these movies a great disservice because I think they would play better. When you, when you have a movie like A Power of the Dog, which, for the record, I didn't care that much about, but it has an audience. It was the type of movie that you would see at your small independent theater. I always use the, the Lemley and um, Encino. Like the one where like, I feel like the 50 somethings always go to and like they go to on an afternoon and they sit there and you know, and Ginny and Bob sit there and they go, oh, what do you want to see? I feel like that movie would have played there for like months, right? It, it just would have been like there for months and, and they would have went to see it and they would have told, you know, Rosie and Jack to see it and everyone would have came and seen it. You don't really have that. With, with Netflix movies is that they get the, the one week, they come in, and, and again, what's the, for people who are not like me, who are obsessed with movies and like the experience, people are just watching it, it's just another movie. That's what we, we often forget. It's just another movie. It's just not, like as soon as you see this, it's on to the next one. And the average person doesn't care if they're watching it on their phone or that, but again, if you want to create an experience and you want more people talking about it, that's why theatrical is so important. And it's going to be, I think it's going to take a lot of, a lot of time before Netflix gets it. They, they, they're going to try for Knives Out too. That's, that's the one they have to push. They already got the green light to premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. They're going to have to really push that for theatrical because the first one was a theatrical movie and people know what it is. So they're gonna, that's going to be their test run of how to get people off the couch from watching Netflix to theaters. But I really do wonder how many theaters are actually going to play it. Scott, what's the difference between critique versus trolling? Nowadays, who knows? Um, <laughs> I, I feel like some critics are almost trolls at this point because once they get their mind made up about things, they seem like they can't understand or respect someone else's. And I, I, I really do feel like social media is, is, is the blame for that because everyone has become 
an expert. And I think I'm probably one of, part of the last generation where I went to school for film criticism and I studied film, I grew up watching film and I didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know, tomorrow I'm gonna start a blog and I'm gonna write about movies and then everyone's gonna accept me as a critic. I went to school for it, whether it was Chapman University or Cutstown University where I got my master's. And I studied film. I studied film production. I studied film criticism. I spent years watching movies and, and reading books about it. And in the last 15 years, that almost like kind of went out the window because, and I, I will say that I think YouTube was the start of it. YouTube allowed, and I, and I was part of this initial buzz on YouTube, allowed the everyday person to be able to record a video and give their opinion on something. Sure, you had LiveJournal beforehand or MySpace or whatever, but YouTube kind of was this thing that caught on and nothing has been able to, to over, overtake it, right? I mean, out of all the videos, platforms in the world, YouTube has, has hold, held strong for 15 years. But I remember this because I remember watching a lot of people who are my colleagues now doing YouTube video reviews whether it was the Smos, Christian and Mark, whether it was Jeremy Johns, Chris Stuckman. And they are all kind of people who felt this love of movies. But they, their, their whole selling point was, we're the average Joe. We're the, you know, the Smos thing was always, we're the Smos, we're the average guy. We're not the film critics, we're not the hoity-toity. And I think for a period of time, it was great because there was a group of them who I think did their homework and they were really prioritized in doing this. But then the floodgates opened and everyone who liked movies decided that they were gonna become a movie reviewer and that they were gonna do it as a career. <laughs> so, we turn into an industry where so many people are putting their time and effort into film and criticism that number one, don't really have a long history of it. They have no backing, they have no schooling behind it. But I think the most troubling part of all of this is who don't make money from it. So, there's only so many jobs, just like there's only so many movies and so many acting roles and so many directing roles and whatnot. There's only so many places for film critics. And with newspapers kind of falling and going away, you don't have as many critics working for those sources anymore. So you have trades. You saw what happened to Entertainment Weekly. They're now all digital. All these websites that popped up, they're all digital. Some of them went under, got sold to other companies. They keep getting sold over and over and over again. 
So there's a very limited amount of space that people can actually critique stuff. And yet everyone feels like they want their voice heard, so they create their own blog or their own movie website. And then they get, in a weird way, they get devastated <laughs> because they're like, oh, I can't make a living. This is what I love. I want to do it, right? And then you got people doing GoFundMes and Kickstarters and all this stuff to kind of like, hey, I want to go to this event. I want to go here. Can you give me money to do this? And these people don't have money. They, can, they can't support themselves and they want to do this. So it's like, it's weird in a weird way. Like when I was growing up, we always remember seeing actors and everyone always hearing everyone. Like I, I know I talked about Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey like sleeping in his car and he wanted to be an actor, right? He just He knew he wanted to be an actor and the struggle of that. And it's weird because now we're like film critics where they're like, we'll do anything for it. And, and it's very strange. But I realized I didn't answer the question about trolls versus film, film critics. To me, a troll is someone who like loves something and like hates anyone who has a different opinion of that and will kind of seek out and want to destroy a person for not sharing the same view or the same love that they have for something. A critic should be able to look at something subjectively, regardless of whether they like an actor, an actress, a filmmaker, and judge a full product and look at it and say, is the script good? Is the score good? Is the production design good? Is the acting good? And be able to kind of call out the weaknesses and the strengths of whatever that project is. And I think there's a very big difference because I've noticed fandom has gone so far past just being a Star Wars movie or Star Wars TV show or DC. It's gone to like individual people. Like I cannot tell you how many times I have been attacked by people who I don't mind as actors or I like as actors, but I don't like something they do. And like this hive mentality comes after you. Like the last, the most recent one was Lady Gaga this past year for House of Gucci. I love Lady Gaga. I think Lady Gaga is a gifted singer. She's a great actress. House of Gucci just didn't showcase her strongest moments. And it was kind of laughably bad at times. You put that out and it's like, they just don't freak, and, and they come at you. Oh, you like Kristen Stewart? How dare you? She's a terrible actress. And it's like, they find everything they can to use against you. And it's just, it's like this so mean-spirited and so much hate that it's almost like after a while, it works against them because like you actually now have like this negative reaction towards this person because their fans are so shitty towards you. Because you're like, I like this person. I just didn't like this one thing. And all these people are like sitting here attacking me now. And like you almost want to like 
what they don't seem to realize too is that the people doing this, we usually have the opportunity at some point, whether it's at an award show, whether it's at a junket, to talk to these to these talents. So it's weird because I think if I ever talk to Lady Gaga, I think I would say to her, you know, probably at the end of the interview or something like that. I said, by the way, you know, do you realize how shitty your fans are? Because like, I literally said I didn't like you on one thing, but I still support you and I still think you're great in these other things. And these people came out at me sending me, you know, death threats and like calling me like the worst person on the planet and all this stuff. So I think that's, that's the really big difference is that as, as, as a critic, even if you love someone, you have to be able to acknowledge that they're not going to be on their game all the time. You know, I love Tim Burton as a director, but sometimes he doesn't make good movies. Alice in Wonderland, not a good movie. Dark Shadows, not a good movie. Doesn't mean I hate Tim Burton. It just means those movies didn't work. And that happens with everything. You can be a Marvel fan and think that Thor is a terrible movie. You can be a Marvel fan and, and hate Ant-Man. It doesn't matter. Like you can still love the product and the brand. They're never going to, nothing's perfect in this world. You're never going to have a 10 out of 10 every time. And I think people need to understand that. And I think that's the importance of criticism is that you have to be able to look at an individual film and judge it on its own merit. It's, it's not about this person's body of work like, I'm going to judge all of Leonardo DiCaprio just because he was in, you know, Shutter Island. That's it. That's it. That's the movie I'm judging him on. No, you have to look at everyone and all they've done, but also look at the individual project and judge that on its own. Has trolling become a hobby? Yes. A lot of them go too far. And sometimes... You get caught up in the moment of it, right? Like it's it's very weird as someone who is a fan of of people who are popular within the industry, uh, whether it's a, a Taylor Swift, a Kristen Stewart, a Tim Burton, um, Steven Spielberg, whoever. You you almost like when they have something you want to champion, you're almost like you almost become part of a. The, the, you know, the hive, we were talking about the hive. You almost become part of that hive because I wanted Kristen Stewart so badly to win the Oscar, right? That like, even though all the signs were pointing in the, in the direction that like, this is not happening, right? She's not established enough. She doesn't have enough people in the industry don't like her. Like all these things were pointing in the direction that she was going to do it. Yet like you believe so strongly in the person and you want to champion them so hard that like you have to like let it go. And the thing is, and that's the difference that I think between regular like critics and, and journalists and, and people who are fans versus trolls is that you can support someone and you can like literally post about them every day if you love them that much. But at the end of the time, like there's gotta be a point where you can cut it off. So like, okay, Kristen Stewart lost. She didn't win the Oscar. You can't sit there for the next year posting about like, oh, she should have won every day. And there's people who do. And I think it's very, very unhealthy that people become so obsessed with celebrities and films and pop stars and all this stuff because 
you have to have focus elsewhere. It's, it's just what you need to, you know, you need to have like a life outside of these things. These are, these are, <laughs> I don't even know how to put it, but these are, these are moments in your life, right? Like seeing a movie exists in, in that moment for the two hours or two and a half hours. And you can like, you can like it and you can talk about it and till you're blue in the face, but you have to have something else. You have to have something else you look for, whether it's a partner, whether it's going out to eat, whether it's going to play sports. You have to, and I'm really kind of worried about some of those in this in these industry, and especially the trolls, who seem like they don't have anything else to do with their time, and they have no other ambitions but to sit here and like support someone who, I hate to say it, probably doesn't even know you exist. And even if they know you exist, they meet you, they say hi, they're thankful that you're supporting them, but they're going home afterwards and they're not gonna say for the next six months thinking about, oh, there's Julie. I remember Julie, we met Julie at that screening and she was so sweet. I'm gonna talk about Julie every day for six, I'm like no. She's literally like, okay. Met a really nice guy, you know, met that really nice guy there. Had a great moment with him. He was really nice. That's it. Come up in conversation once. Every, you know, that's it. What do you think of critics who go out of their way to bash movies? Is that being brutally honest and people just tell it like it is? Or is there an element of wanting to wound somebody? It depends on the person. I feel like there's certain critics who literally have an out for certain filmmakers, certain producers, certain actors, that no matter what they do, they won't give them like an inch. It's just like, ah, oh, this guy, you know, you always hear the, the expression, white man keeps falling upward, you know? And I mean, the industry is very guilty of that, right? Like there's, there's a lot of, white men in this industry who have made some really shitty movies that just keep getting to make shitty movies. And I think it's okay to call people out if they kind of proven themselves time and time again. Like if you're going like past a three or four time and you're like still making a, something that's not good and we kind of have this, you know, universal decision that like this is not a good movie and you're not a good director. Maybe it's time to push that person aside and give someone else. But I do feel like a good actor could meet a good director and it could be a game changer. Someone who like has been bad as an actor could have a great script with a great filmmaker and they could turn that person into a star. I mean, there's so many people like within comedy. Um, I, I really don't like the way that comedy has become over the last like decade where everything's kind of like over-sexualized and it's gross out humor and like shitting in buckets and farting and all this stuff, like all these like kids playing with dildos, all this like really like grotesque, like infantile stuff. And you know, it, People have been embracing it because like, oh, now it's females doing it. Isn't it funny because it's a female shitting in a bucket? It's like, 
nah, it wasn't funny when the guy was doing it. It's definitely not funny when the woman's doing it. Like, no, it doesn't work. But you get to see certain actors like evolve. And I mean, great examples for me are a lot of comedic actors, right? You can take an Adam Sandler or you can take a Jim Carrey. And I'm going to go use those two because those are people who I grew up with and, and I love Jim Carrey. But watching Jim Carrey, like there's a bunch of people who hated Jim Carrey and his brand of humor, right? So they're seeing all his movies, they see Ace Ventura, God, this is stupid, dumb and dumber, such stupid stuff. And then you get to see him in Truman Show. And you get to see a different side of him. And it just, it changes everything. You just, you, your, your perspective of Jim Carrey has changed and you see this whole different side. So flash forward to like recent years, seeing people like Seth Rogen move away from kind of the knocked up thing to do like more serious dramas or roles that are comedic but are more mature. Jonah Hill, like watching him kind of like in a super bad and then seeing him in like Wolf of Wall Street or Moneyball. I couldn't stand Jonah Hill in those movies like super bad and and... And uh, oh my God, what's the other one? Like The Sitter, all those movies where he was doing all those comedies. And then he's in Moneyball. And I'm like, who's this guy? Like, why is he so good? And then Wolf of Wall Street. You, you really, you got to find it very interesting. You got to give people chances. And they're not, you're not always going to be a fan and you may never be a fan of that person. But in the right hands, uh, uh, an actor could, who you think might be mediocre or not good could can you know, transcend everything you ever thought of that person. You might fall in love with them. So when it comes to critics, I think it's really hard because I do think that people feel a very strong vendetta towards certain filmmakers or certain actors. And they, they kind of want to poo-poo them. Like they always want them to fail. And I'm not saying that that's a big portion of them, but there are definitely people who like, Oh, you really, really hate this person. And every time you see them, like we know point blank that this is going to be a negative review. And I think that's problematic because in, as I said, in film criticism, the most important thing to be is subjective and open-minded. You need to go into anything. If a trailer looks bad, if everything looks like it's going to be terrible, you can go in that movie and it might surprise you. And you have to admit that you're wrong. And if you like something that other people don't like, you can also admit that and not be afraid of it because a lot of people are afraid of not agreeing with the general consensus. What should matter more to a film critic, being popular or being right? <laughs> um, probably every video that people are gonna watch is like, depends on who you ask. To me, I don't know. I don't really like that question because it shouldn't be right and it shouldn't be about popularity. It should be about how that movie worked for you and why. Why did that movie work? Why is that a good movie? And explaining why you think that's a good movie. To me, there should be no popularity in film criticism. Like, you shouldn't... And that, that, that's a problem in itself and a tangent that I can go on about how the industry picks 20 
people to see stuff always first. And every time they see something, it's either going to be a glowing review or they won't tweet. And to me, it's so problematic. And everyone calls them out and everyone knows. And they work for outlets that get all the access in the world. And they can't publicly say it. They know it. It's because what people will not tell you about criticism is that when you, when you work for a company that the foundation of your job is built on selling this stuff, you saying something bad about it, and if it's your job to do the junket right afterwards and sit down with the talent, the talent is not going to sit down with you if you say something is bad or you really hammer a movie or you, you really go in on it. They're not. And this is something that I don't know why everyone is so afraid of. So when you, unless you're separating the person doing the interview from the person who's doing the review, there is unfortunately a bias that is creative that you can either own up and say, you know what, I did not like this. So I'm not going to say anything because I know I have the junket. Or you just kind of have to like pass the buck and be like, you know what, I feel really strongly about this. I really don't like this. So I'm going to have to like save my piece. And then if, I, if it costs me this, it costs me this. But th 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 there's a financial thing. And I don't mean to throw any outlet underneath the bus, but like when you look at trades, whether it's Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Deadline, or you look at something like Fandango, is the person who works at Fandango going to screen a movie and come out of it and say, oh, that was terrible? As the initial reaction of like when he's one of the first people to see it, when he works for a site whose job it is to sell tickets. And so many people in this industry are struggling that they rely on such dual jobs of like not just doing criticism anymore, but also like pitching a story to do a write-up of like the behind the scenes of this movie that they can't say things because if the publicist, the personal publicist, the studio publicist sees this, they have the potential of losing it. People want to be moderators. People who want to be moderators get paid good money to moderate a panel. Do you think that person is going to get the job if they don't like the movie? No. So there's, there's so many different layers to everything now. And I think it's, just, it's, it's exposed more because of all of the stuff that we see, right? Because of the social media and all this stuff. And you just kind of see the same names. Like when we were growing up, <laughs> when I was growing up and I, I, you know, I saw a name on a trailer, right? It didn't think to me like, why is that same person being quoted all the time? Like it was like always the same couple people. And now it's the same thing where it's the same names, you know? So like you, almost after a while, you kind of understand like there's people that they can go to who can kind of say, hey, we need a quote. Give us a quote. So there's just so many aspects of this industry that are very difficult. But when it comes to being popular versus being right, I mean, I don't think they have any place in criticism, you know, because you're right in your opinion. 
Your opinion's right. No one should be able to change that. If you like something, you like something. As long as you can explain why you like something, that's right to who you are as a person. And to be popular, I don't know. Like, I, again, it's a weird fandom thing. Like, film critics have their own fandom. Like, I, it's weird now, like, right? Like, when we were growing up, there was the greats, right? We had Leonard Maltin. We had Siskel and Ebert. And there was, a, yeah, yeah. There was a couple other people. And they were just about a very small group because they were kind of ones that like everyone knew of. They had TV shows or whatever. And you, you were very familiar. But like now there's so many and it's like social media, like the guy who runs, I don't know. I'm, I'm Again, I'm not trying to like narrow and point things out, but like the guy who runs comicbook.com, like, oh my God, I love that guy. It's like the guy runs comicbook.com. Like his, his job is to like talk about comic book movies. And when then that, that same guy who's going to go see Black Adam and he's going to talk to Dwayne Johnson, he's not going to be able to come out of Black Adam and be like, oh man, that movie sucks. Like, what am I doing? Like, what a waste of my time. Because he knows two days later, he's going to be sitting down with Dwayne Johnson talking about it. Because that's the next piece of article that's going on there. And, and the trades are, are even worse because of the fact that they, their whole business is selling ads and revenues and telling stories. So I, I just, I, my eyes have been opened and I have forever changed the way I look at all of this moving out here. I never knew any of this until I moved out here eight years ago. And that really changed, changed how I view a lot of this stuff. And it's very hard because I try very hard to be a genuine person and I like what I like and I, and I don't feel bad about what I like and, I, and stuff I don't like. It's very hard because you are often criticized if you go too hard on something. And it's just, again, it's my personal feeling. So, but I don't go out of the way. There's, there's a difference between people who go out of their way to slam something over and over and over and over again. If someone else likes it, enjoy it. That's fine. I just want my peace. And if someone asks me about it, I'm going to make my, <laughs> my anger or my love of something very well known. So uh, fairness in the criticism versus just trying to just constantly bring, like thinking it's your right to bring someone down. Because there is that angle online as well. And, and, and so going back to, let's say, you talked about Jonah Hill. Maybe you weren't the exact fan of him right. in comedic roles, but then when you saw him in two more serious roles, you're like, you know what? I like this guy. And, and it's, do you, you know, did you go out of your way to slam him? I doubt it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you don't. I mean, I think it's like, again, it's, it's the level of which you go for it, right? You can be very vocal about you don't like a director, you don't like an actor, you don't like a pop star, you don't like a sports figure, you don't like whatever. But there's a point, there's a crossroads, right? When you're going out of your way, like, and this is what we were talking about with trolls. When you go out of your way to start seeking people and like tearing them down and like there are people who I know who if they don't like something, they will go on everyone's posts, social media, Facebook, Instagram, and be like, you're wrong, you suck, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. You're the worst critic ever, you're the worst, you know, what does this take, blah, blah, blah. You were bought by Marvel, you were bought by DC, you were bought by Star Wars, you were bought by Disney, whatever. That's where you cross a line, right? You can just say, 
man, I totally saw this differently. And I, I again, I think it's it's something about there's a fine line. Like you can be movies have this strange way and i think it's all entertainment it has a strange way of connecting with people when you see a good movie and it connects with you you want to get up you want to ch ch cheer you want to celebrate it you want to tell all your friends to see it you probably you know us weird people who, who get obsessed with these things you don't want to stop talking about it you just want to keep championing it i mean i i, I go back to my coda example like I saw that movie at Sundance on a virtual screening link. As soon as I was able to see it in a theater, I saw it in a theater. And then I went to multiple press events for it. Whether I was moderating it or part of it or not, I went back and I saw it. And I, because I wanted to support the movie. And like, if people are like, oh, you're being such a shill. It's like, no, no, no. If I was doing this for every Apple release or every Disney release or every DC release, then I would be a shill. But because I'm literally picking something that resonated with me, that I love and I want to champion, there's a difference. And that's what people don't seem to get. You can like something that a company puts out and hate the next thing. And I always use this as a great example because I did not like Tragedy of Macbeth. And that was the other movie that was Apple was pushing with Coda. And they tried to get me to see that movie again. And I told the reps, I will not watch that movie again. And they were like, come on, Denzel Washington. And I'm like, if I'm going to meet Denzel Washington for the first time, I want it to be a movie where I can walk up to him and be like, Denzel, you're amazing and this movie's amazing. Not like you're amazing, but like, can we talk about Training Day or something else? Because I don't want to talk about this. From the game Pitch Storm that we have here, uh, we're going to present you with a few character descriptions and plot lines. And we'd like to see what movies come to mind. I'm going to read a few. Uh, the first one is character and the character trait is a journalist on the trail of a huge story. First thing you can in mind, spotlight. Spotlight. Uh, let's see what else. All the President's Men. The Post. his name of it pelican brief or no no that's different no so. i was thinking uh aaron brockovich okay, yeah great. so those 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 would be the ones that come to mind for that right state of play did you see that russell oh my god yeah yeah that was so good yeah it was yeah, yeah it was. was good okay okay wonderful love it um here is another uh character a suave art thief <laughs> oceans movie <laughs> doesn't matter which one um Mordecai, can I say Mordecai? As, as weird as that sounds, uh, I would say Mordecai. And Ocean's 11, 12, 13, 1700. Uh, <laughs> art movies. Oh, Da Vinci Code. Bean. There you go. Bean. And uh, that's it. <laughs> Did you see American Animals? My, yes. But I would never have thought of that. You would never thought of that. I would have never have thought of that. I don't know how suave they were, yes, but yeah, yes. it was still But I would have never thought of that. Okay. I love I saw that, that at Sundance, too. Oh, I love that film. Yeah. It's so great. Okay. Um, a fiery young rapper on their way to fame. Eight Mile. Done. <laughs> I really don't have any other answers besides that. Eight Mile. Okay. 
Okay, great. Uh, all right. A troubled kid with supernatural abilities. Spider-Man. Batman. Wonder Woman. <laughs> oh my god powder powder it's going back that, that that's going back a ways that director <laughs> got canceled by the way you can't you can't like okay. powder anymore okay i'm sorry because it's the same director who did jeepers creepers i'm pretty sure uh, well sean patrick flannery was excellent <laughs> that, so he was great he was fantastic you're not allowed you're not okay allowed to i can like, like sean though yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yes. we'll move on now to uh plot okay with our little game here and here we go battles corruption in the greeting card industry <laughs> oh my god is that that's not uh, i know what the movie is but i can't think of it i'm gonna have to pass okay i can't name it either i don't know it doesn't have the answer on the back. No, it doesn't. Oh my it god! Doesn't. I was like, I'm like, there is a movie that is about greeting cards, and I'm like trying to think what it is. Where like all the writers are sitting in the room thinking about greeting cards, and I cannot remember what, for the life of me what that movie is. Okay. okay. Well, hopefully in the comments someone can um, yes put the right one. Okay. Races around the world in a hot air balloon. Around the world in eighty days. Done. That's that's the only one I can think of. Okay. Um, is mistakenly sent to heaven. Kenny at the at the end of the South Park movie. Um, <laughs> oh, what was that other one? Wasn't there? There's a Chris Rock movie that I can't remember the title of, but there was a Down to Earth, right? It's down to Earth. I, mean, I guess that's the opposite. So he didn't get sent to heaven. He came down to Earth. Um, but yeah. There's a John Travolta movie too, I think. Oh, yes, Michael. Yeah, Michael, okay. Michael, yeah, Michael, yeah, Michael, yeah. Michael, yes. He's like the sort of the, yeah. the, the snarky angel. That's yeah. right. That was in good. the 90s. Yep. I like that. Yeah. yeah my, <laughs> some of my references are going back a few years here, but okay. Goes undercover in the world of hip hop culture. Twenty one Jump Street, I guess both of those. Twenty one Jump Street, twenty two Jump Street. Oh my God, there was that terrible Jamie movie, most America's Most Wanted or Most Wanted. I don't remember. Jamie Kennedy movie from like the late 90s. Um, I feel like there was a parody movie about this as well. Dance flick or something? I don't know. Okay. I couldn't name one. So. <laughs> You're doing better than I am. Okay. Competes in a deadly reality TV competition. First movie that comes to mind is uh, God Bless America. Second one was, I think it's called Series 7, The Contenders. I mean, Squid Game, of course, comes to mind now, even though it's not really the same. And so does Hunger Games, even though they're not really the same. And, of course, Battle Royale. Um, but that's it. Okay, here's another. Discovers a dangerous secret at a popular new theme park. 
<laughs> uh, Escape from Tomorrowland. Remember that movie? <laughs> that was the undercover uh, Disney movie that they did. It was a big thing at Sundance. They went into Disneyland and they filmed the entire movie with like portable ha- um, camcorders and they told some kind of story around it. It was like all the like the dark secrets of like Disneyland. It's a very bizarre movie. I did not like it. But it, it, it always sticks in my mind. Whenever someone says something about amusement parks, that one always comes to my mind. And I did like the horror movie that was at Six Flags. I can't remember the heck the name of that was. It came out a couple of years ago. Fright Night, maybe Fright Night. No, Fright Night. Something else. I can't remember. Okay. Discovers the Fountain of Youth. <laughs> Keanu Reeves movie? Um... I feel like multiple ones from like the 90s. <laughs> Cocoon. Cocoon. Again, yes. going back over years. Oh my gosh. That, wow, that's a tough one. No, I can't think of anything else. Yeah. Um, well, oh, no big. That's not really the fountain of youth. No. Because, yeah, that's, no. that's not it, but okay. Friggy Friday, if you're going to go that route, I mean, no. Searches for peace in a dangerous radioactive wasteland. Toxic Avenger. (laughs) There you go. One for all the cult favorites. Fighting against evil robots that look like people. AI. Immediately comes to mind. Is iRobot also qualify for that? I guess so. And then... That's it. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it's, it wouldn't be chappy. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, yeah. He was, yeah. Too, he was way too nice. Yeah, way too nice. Sweet guy. <laughs> I'm hoping to get your thoughts on this. I found a 2017 article in the Financial Review about Steven Spielberg, and the writer says, few great film directors are as picked on as Steven Spielberg. And then the article continues to say, partly this is down to his outsized success, which sits ill at ease with our notion of an artist. I find that interesting. Do you think success brings a distrust of the artist after a while? It brings more criticism, for sure. Because when you have someone like Steven Spielberg who raised the bar so much very early on, Jaws, what that did for like the horror movie genre, you know, and it's still talked about to this day. Jurassic Park, Schindler's List. The older he gets, the projects he takes on, they're not as many home runs or they're not as consistent. But I think he's making movies that are more what he wants to do. He's kind of earned the right to make the movies that he wants to make. And that piece makes me immediately think of West Side Story because there was so much criticism around West Side Story. And I'm not saying that they were wrong, but there was a lot of criticism with the Latino culture about how they were presented in the movie and how a certain filmmaker should have been directing that movie. But I think 
he's at a point where he's kind of a legacy director and he's earned his stripes that if you're a studio and Steven Spielberg walks into your office and goes, hey, I want to remake West Side Story. I don't really think anyone's going to turn him down. Right. And I think people forget about that. And it, it there is a discussion to be had there about whether certain filmmakers really should be tackling certain topics and whether other filmmakers would be better suited for that. But I do think you kind of earn your right to do a lot of stuff when you've proven yourself so much. And so much of film history is centered around what you have accomplished. I mean, Close Encounters. I mean, Indiana Jones. Like, there's so much stuff that he has been a part of that you can't take away from. It's just like, you kind of get a pass. You kind of get to do what you want. But I do think that the older... Uh, uh, um, a director becomes the more criticism he faces. And you you don't have to just use Steven Spielberg. Look at Martin Scorsese. How many, how many people have been criticizing him more? Clint Eastwood. Yeah. How many people criticize him now? I mean, Woody Allen for other reasons, but I mean, Woody Allen has always been sort of a one-note filmmaker, right? It's always a rich socialites getting together for something. He's been making the same movie since the 80s, but only because of the controversy around him that people start being like, oh, he's not that good of a director. It's like, oh, no, he's like literally been making the same movie over and over again. Like, so if this is not good, then those other movies weren't that good either. So yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, that's that's really what it comes down to is that I think it's easy to become a punching bag, but it's even more easy to be a punching bag in a modern age when you're an older white guy. It's something that I've I definitely noticed. People are not afraid to throw older white men underneath the bus anymore. And in terms of the the scope of West Side Story, I mean, there were a lot of cast members, right? Yeah. So to give this to a newer director, uh, would be, I mean, this is someone who's directed large-scale production, so not just his name, but also expertise. I mean, some some would argue that he didn't have a background in musicals. Um, you know, again, the story, the subject matter is very sensitive. And it's, again, it's, you're talking about a movie that came out originally in the 50s, and people have problems with that, regardless of whether Rena, Rena, uh, Rita Morano is in it. They still have problems with the way that that story was told. And people still view it as a classic. But again, like a lot of movies made in different generations, they don't necessarily are up to par with the way things are today. And I think that's the problem. I think if, if Steven Spielberg wanted to remake West Side Story in the 90s, the approach and the criticism on it would have been a lot different. Sure. Nowadays, it's sort of like, no, why didn't like Lin-Manuel Miranda direct that? He would have been a much better director. He's Latino. He would have gotten the storyline. He would have gave it more emotion. You know, and that movie also unfairly got a lot of hate because of the whole Ansel Elgort thing. 
and people criticizing them for like nobody going and bashing him on that tour, which is like, I think people forget that just because one person does something crappy to one person doesn't mean that he's crappy to everyone. You know, this is not a Harvey Weinstein situation on our hands. And sometimes people can get called out and they can learn from their mistakes. And it also depends on the person's age. He's a young guy. We make a lot of bad decisions when we're in high school and college. Sure. And he probably just made a bad decision. So as long as he learns from it and grows from it, it's fine. But that movie, I didn't love that movie, but I feel like that movie really got like the the shit end of the stick. I don't know. I don't know how else to put it because I feel like it was just always on the chopping block for so many people. And so going forward, maybe younger directors who are earning their stripes, is that something that they will have to face? Uh, that that they will be once you get to be a certain level now, you're just you you have a target on your back basically. I mean, it's so hard how everyone turns on someone now, right? Like, we saw it with Patty Jenkins with 1984. Everyone loved Wonder Woman. Everyone loved Monster. And then all of a sudden, everyone turned. Like, we, we forget that filmmakers and actors, they're not perfect. They take roles. They make movies that sometimes don't work or they don't connect, they don't resonate. And it's so weird because I don't know how to answer that question because I almost feel like it is dependent on a person. Like, are people going to turn on Jordan Peele if Nope is not good? I don't know. And, and then it, it becomes this weird conversation about is it a race thing? Is it a sexual orientation thing? Is it what the person stands for? Like, are we like because Jordan Peele is such a inspiring filmmaker and someone who's so ambitious and takes chances and made two movies that were very critically acclaimed? Is it okay because he's a person of color who puts other people of color in his movies for Nope? And I'm not saying I don't know, I haven't seen it, but if Nope is not good. Will he get the pass because of all the other things he, he, he's done? Or will people turn on him and be like, oh, I guess that gravy train's over. This guy is a terrible filmmaker. What a terrible movie. It's so hard to know anymore because you watch everyone turn so quickly on someone and it doesn't matter what it is. It, it's, it's a really weird time to be in this industry because you say one thing wrong and, and, and a whole entire group of people can turn against you. You make one bad film and it's like they lost it. It's, it's crazy. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, such a, it's such a weird way to think because we started this question with Steven Spielberg. And I mean, Steven Spielberg has consistently made a good movie and a bad movie, a good movie and a bad movie, a good movie and a bad movie. It's just the way that it is. And again, it's all subjective. Mm -hmm. Film, all art is subjective. What's bad to some might be good to someone else.